Well, good morning. If you guys don't know me, uh, my name is Mike Berry. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. It's my privilege to feed the flock this morning uh, from God's Word. We're going to go ahead and start uh, with a reading of God's Word in John 17. And then we'll pray and then we will jump into the text of Scripture. I'm in John 17, starting in verse 1. We're going to read the, the whole chapter. I'm reading from a New King James Version. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me and have received them. And they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves, and I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world and for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth now this is the section we'll be talking about this morning 20 to 26 I do not pray for these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have declared 
to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we come to you this morning with great appreciation for our Savior Jesus Christ and his prayer that has been recorded for us in Holy Scripture. We thank you, Father, that you have given to your Son authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given to him. And as we sit here this morning, we sit amongst people who have come to eternal life because they have been foreordained to do so from before the foundation of the world. There are people in this very room who have been given to the Son, and the Son has given them eternal life. And Lord, we thank you that your Son has finished this work that you have given him to do. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have shown abroad in our hearts through the scriptures and through the spirit and that you have taken us out of the world, this world that hates you. You have caused the world to hemorrhage believers out of it through the word and through the spirit. We thank you, Lord, for praying for us that we would be kept from the devil and we ask that you would continue to keep us from the devil. Thank you that you kept your apostles from the world and the devil and that their message has come to us this day, 2,000 years later. We thank you, Father, that you sent your son into the world and as you did so, you also sent your apostles into the world and that we have all come to believe in the message of the gospel because of your faithfulness through them. We ask that you would open up your word to our eyes this morning so that we may see, Father, your love for your Son and your love for us because of our position enfolded in the Son. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to behold your glory, though we see it as in a mirror dimly, but we would be able to hear the whispers of your love that portend to us in the future as you draw us to yourself in that final day. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. What we have before us is the third part in a series called Jesus Prayed. We spent um, some time, uh, the last two times that I have had the opportunity to preach, one, we looked at the first eight verses of this prayer, which is really just one prayer, Father, glorify me. And we talked about that. And then in the next message, we talked about how that Jesus prays for the disciples. He prayed for them. He didn't pray for the world. He prayed for the disciples. And then it really brings us up to our passage this morning where Jesus prays for those who will believe And the hinge verse that takes us into these verses is verse 18, where Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So the father sent the son into the world and he glorified his father. And then he sends his apostles into the world in order that we might receive the message. And now Jesus is going to pray for us in this passage. But I want to before we jump into this text, I want to take us back to last week for a moment as we just consider the Genesis 38 and the passage about Judah. I don't know about you, but that sermon last week had all the marks of a revival message, uh, a message about God's grace in a man named Judah that was completely undeserving of that grace, right? And as, as I sat there and listened to the word of God being preached, I was sensing my own lack of deservedness and yet God's grace that he had poured into my life and on me as he's poured it upon Judah. But it raised a question in my mind that perhaps it has raised in your mind as well. And that is, why is Judah loved and Onan and Er judged? What's so special about Judah 
Why did Judah get God's grace when Onan did not? What about me? Am I a Judah? Or am I a Judas? As we see in this prayer. You know what's interesting is Judas is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Judah. In the Old Testament we see God pouring His mercy upon Judah, which means praised. And in this text, we see someone named Judas who dismisses himself from Jesus's prayer and goes off into oblivion, into the condemnation of Onan and Er. So who are we this morning? Are we Judas or are we Judah? And what will happen to the disciples as Jesus prays this prayer? If you guys remember the context, this is a precarious time uh, in the history of redemption. Jesus washed the feet of the disciples in chapter 13, and he speaks of his love. He puts Judas in a position of, of honor at the right hand or perhaps the left hand of Christ. Jesus actually gives to Judas the honorable piece of the sop, the bread. And yet Judas walks away into the night being filled with the devil. And goes off to betray the son of the living God. So Judah, Judas is not here when this prayer is uttered from the lips of Jesus Christ. But who hears this prayer? It's Peter and James and John and Andrew and Nathaniel, the rest of the disciples. These who are about to scatter as Jesus says, In chapter 16, he says in 1632, indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. They're ready to scatter and Jesus knows this. And so he begins to pray a prayer that was uttered 2000 years ago in the hearing of his disciples, knowing full well that John, the beloved disciple, would hear it. And then he would pen it, he would write it down, and that would we, we would hear it this very morning. And no doubt, in our midst this morning, there are some of us here who are Judas that sense our sin, and, and yet the Lord is wanting to pour His grace out upon us. And yet, perhaps there are those of us here that are as Judas, that our hearts are hardened, and we've already checked out, and we do not want to hear the Word of God. We do not want to hear the prayers of Jesus this morning on our behalf. What is it ultimately that determines whether we're Judah or Judas? Is it Judas' faithfulness? Is it Peter's faithfulness? Is it the fact that Peter and James and John were so committed and so radical and faithful in their love for the Lord Jesus Christ? What is it that keeps them to the end? What is it that will keep you and me to the end? What is it that ultimately determines this morning whether you or I are Judah or Judas? I believe that Christ's prayer, particularly his prayer in these verses, help us answer that very question as we see Jesus not just now praying for his disciples as he was in verses 9 to 19. Now he begins to turn and pray for us. He's praying for those who will believe. And so we're going to discuss this passage, this part of the prayer, really under three headings. We're going to talk about the fact that we're going to talk about Jesus's subjects, the subjects of this prayer. We're going to talk about the desires that Jesus has in this prayer. And then we're going to talk finally about his declarations, what he knows to be true. So very simple outline. But this is I want to just admit this is such a complicated text we're going to try to make it as simple as possible but it's as i've studied this passage over the last year i feel like a little kid that's listening to his parents say things that you just don't understand you know how like you know mom and dad will be having a discussion and then one of your little children will chime in and it's pretty obvious they have no idea what you're talking about right and so we get whispers of what's happening here as the father is talking to the son and and the Holy Spirit does want us to know much of what is happening here. But the deeper we look into this prayer, the more we realize we really have no idea what's going on here. 
But it's in the word of God because Jesus wants us to know something of what is going on between him and his father and by implication, the Holy Spirit. Thus, he has prayed it on our behalf and for our benefit. And I think by the end of this message, we're going to see it's going to help us see one, whether we are how we can know if we're Judah or Judas and how that we can know that we will remain in the love of the father. Does that make sense? So let's look together first at the subjects. The subjects of Christ's prayer in verse 20. Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. These are the subjects of Christ's prayer now. As we said, he had prayed for the apostles in verses 9-19. And then there's this hinge verse in 18 where he he prays and, 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 and really recites the fact that as the father has sent him into the world, he now is sending them into the world. And when we consider what the world is up to this point, the world is not a delightful place, right? Look what it says Uh, In verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. The world is a a place that hates Jesus Christ. Turn back to John 16, verse 20. Jesus says, most assuredly, this is part of the same discourse, uh, upper room discourse, actually, as they're moving towards the Valley of Kidron before he comes to the, the Garden of Gethsemane. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful. When Jesus Christ goes to die on the cross, when, thing, when he is arrested and put uh, and judged and put on the cross, the, the disciples will sorrow. And at the same time, the world will rejoice because they hate Jesus and they hate the disciples. And yet in verse 18, Jesus says, I am sending the disciples into the world. That's why he prays earlier that they would not be that they would be kept from the world, not taken out of it, but kept from the evil one. And so he turns on this hinge verse in verse 18 to the next subjects. And that's those who are going to benefit from this sending from this mission of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, I do not pray for these alone. I'm not just praying for the ones that I'm sending into the world. But I'm also praying ditto for those who present tense believe into me through their word. What is Jesus saying here? I'm not just praying for the apostles that they would be kept from the evil one and that that they would survive through the world. But I'm also praying ditto everything I've just prayed in nine to nineteen I'm praying for this group of people that are right now present before my eyes. It's actually a present tense here in the Greek. I'm praying for this group of people that I'm looking at right now. He's looking. Just think about this. 2000 years ago, Jesus is looking at the whole church, looking at you, looking at me, not just as a group, but as individuals. He's looking into your eyes right now, saying, I pray for them who are going to believe into me, not just believe in me, but they're going to believe into me. Their faith that they have in the word preached will bring them into me, into communion with me through this word, this gospel, this truth that he's been talking about in this prayer. So the subjects are us. It's the church of all ages that Christ has in his mind in the present tense. He looks out into the future and he sees that these apostles are going to go out and they're going to preach the gospel they're going to the gospel will be put into scripture and the scripture will be delivered and then in 2019 there would be people sitting at cornerstone and riverside hearing this gospel preached and jesus is looking at us this morning and is saying i pray for them those who will believe not might believe But those who guarantee Jesus is looking at the present tense, they're already in his view with no possibility of them being outside of his view. He's praying for you. He's praying for me, brother and sister, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
today. If you've come in to Jesus Christ through the gospel, through faith, he's praying for you. You are the subject of this prayer. And that should give us great comfort. I just wonder what it did. We know what it did later for Peter and for James and for John. When they're hearing this prayer prayed initially, they had just been arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, right? Arguing about who's going to be the greatest as Jesus had washed their feet. And here they are now on the Valley of Kidron. Judas has moved away. They don't necessarily know why Judas has left, but they're going to find out pretty soon. And then Jesus is going to be arrested and they're all going to scatter. And some of them are going to follow from afar. And surely these words would come back to their mind that Jesus prayed for us, but he didn't just pray for us. He's praying for people who are going to benefit through us, through our preaching. And so what that what must that mean about us? We're going to survive. We're going to make it. We're going to survive the harassment of the devil and false teaching and the world and the lust of the flesh, the eyes, the devil. There's this group of people that Jesus has in mind that he is praying for who will be there because the apostles will be there. They will get there. They will survive. They are the sent ones. And so we see we have a missionary God who sends Jesus to this world. And we have a missionary Christ who sends the apostles out to the believing ones. And that mission has succeeded by the untold myriads that we see who have come from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we're evidence of that today. We're evidence today of the answer of this prayer. If the Holy Spirit has opened up your ears, and I know that many or most of us here, the Spirit has opened up your ears to hear the Word of God, understand the Gospel, and believe it, you are an answer to this prayer right now. And so if the Spirit is stirring in your heart through the preached Word, and if it does so on a, on a weekly basis, you can take joy and assurance that you are in the camp of Judah, not in the camp of Judas. Unfortunately, I remember a time in my life when I was sitting underneath the preaching of God's Word when I was younger, and there was something in my heart that was opposed to God's word. There was something in my heart that I wanted to do that was not according to God's word. And I dismissed, I remember getting up and dismissing myself from the preaching of God's word to walk out into the darkness. I literally got up and left a church service to go pursue my sin. That's scary. I did what Judas did. I moved away from the preaching of God's word. But praise the Lord, you're here this morning for the preaching of God's word. And if you still have a beating heart, there is hope for each one of us in this room. As long as we remain and abide within the preaching and within the vicinity of the gospel, there is always hope for us. Stay there, brother and sister. Do not move away from the preaching of God's word, for it is our salvation. We have a saving God. We have a missionary God who wants to save us. But is it coming upon us to stay there, to stay underneath the waterfall of the gospel? So we move from the subjects to Jesus' desires in this prayer. In verses 21 to 24, we see his desires. And the desires are, they kind of flow out of the prayer requests that have already been prayed in, in verses 9 to 19, particularly that part of the prayer in verse 11, where Jesus says, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. That's the main prayer request for the apostles. And as he identifies the new subjects, he's basically saying ditto for them because he says also and alone and also. And then when we move into verse 21, it's hard to see in the English, but in the Greek, you have these these clauses, these purpose result clauses that really are a result of this implied prayer for all of us. Christ has prayed that 
the apostles would be kept. He's praying that we would all be kept. And as a result of that keeping, there's certain results that Jesus desires, not just desires, but decrees as he comes together with his father in this prayer. And so let's consider these desires, these decrees together. Verse 21, that as a result of these ones, these believing ones, believing the gospel and being kept by the power of Christ and the Father, 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Let's just stop right there. What in the world does that mean? That they all, that is the apostles and all the believers, may be one. Does it mean that he, he wants this desire, this result, that we would all be one? Uh, there are so many different views on this. I'm not even going to go into all of them. I'm just going to try to give you the best guess that I have of these whisperings between the father and the son as we listen to this adult conversation. I think the verse, verse 21 tells us what one means. That they all may be one. In what sense? As you, father, are what? In me. And I. In you. That they also may be one, what? In us. So he's praying for these believing ones that they would be kept in the gospel, resulting in this enfolding within this union between the Father and the Son. There's some sort of enfolding that happens between the Father and the Son. And Jesus wants us in there. He wants us to get in there. Does that make sense? I want you to turn back to chapter 10 because this whole gospel, what, what John records for us from the words of Jesus, it all, all these words kind of hang together and they get repeated over and over again. And I believe we get some clue of this union from chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 28. Actually, start in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now, notice the language that we see in the next three verses that is repeated in Christ's prayer in chapter 17. I give them eternal life. That's right out of verse 3. And they shall never perish. That's verse 11. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. I believe that's the union. How do I know that? Verse 29, my father who has given them to me, that's all over chapter 17, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Verse 30, here's the kicker. I and my father are what? One. That's the oneness that's going on here. We're wrapped up in the hands of Christ. We're wrapped up in the hands of the father. The Father and the Son are one in their enfolding purposes. And as those future believers would come to believe the preaching of the gospel, Jesus says, here's what I desire to result, and it will result, that they all would be one. That is enfolded in this inter-Trinitarian union between me and you, that they would be in us. I think that's what's happening here. He's praying that we would all be unified within this unsnatchable grip, this unpluckable enfolding of the Father and the Son. You guys, those of you guys that are parents, you, I'm sure you guys have experienced this. You, you come home. This happens more when your kids are toddlers. I, my teenagers don't do this anymore. It kind of makes me sad. But, you know, you come home and you give your your wife a hug, and what do your, your toddlers automatically want to do? They want to come in and get in on it, right? You, you're hugging your wife, and the toddlers come in, and they just they, they squeeze right in there, right? And now that we have a dog, I, never, I always said I'd never have a dog, but we have a dog. And so when the dog's in the house, which isn't very often because I have allergies, but that's another story. So 
when I hug my wife, Max wants to get in on it. He just comes over and just, he sees something happening and he wants to be there, right? You, you guys have experienced this? Yes. That's what Jesus is praying for. He's praying that we would get in on it. Can you guys just pray for me that I don't cry? Because I got a lot to say and I don't have time for tears, okay? Um, uh, it just wants us to get in on it. And, and, and this, is, this is something that Jesus is praying for. And brothers and sisters, Jesus' prayers get answered, right? They get answered. I'm praying that, that they would be enfolded in this unpluckable union, this love bubble between the Father and the Son, that they would be in there. But I want you to also notice what Jesus is seeing will result from this union of the father and the son and us in on that love bubble. And that's the end of verse 21 with the other results that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, if we've been paying attention to Christ's prayer, that should shock us in some senses, because everything that's come up to this point about the world is not good. Uh, the world is bad. The world hates Jesus in fact, look at verse six. Remember this? Jesus says, I manifested your name to the men. That's the apostles whom you have given me out of the what? You gave me the apostles out of that mess, right? That that group that hates me, that hates you. The apostles have been brought out of that. And I'm praying that you will not take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. These people that hate me. And yet. He's praying that this love bubble would have an effect upon this cesspool called the world. With the result that the world would believe that you, Father, have sent me. What is he saying there? I think what I can tell from the whisperings through the door in this adult conversation, I don't pretend to know everything that it means, but... It seems like what Jesus is saying is he wants the love bubble between the father and the son and us enfolded in it to provoke such jealousy and for the spirit to use it in such a way that people in the world, that there are still lost ones out in that world that will look on that and say, I want in too. In fact, verse six tells us where did the apostles used to be? According to verse six. They were in the world. The father brought them out of the world. So the apostles used to be in there, but they were brought out. And we were all in the kingdom of darkness. If we understand our position, we were dead in Christ. We were all out there in the world, right? That's why we have no reason to be proud because we were all, as Paul says, we were adulterers and we were jealous and all this. But when the kindness and love of God, our savior before man appeared, God had mercy upon us, not by our works, right? And so we were all there. And so this love bubble is to provoke and cause this massive hemorrhage in the devil's world system. That as the father and the son's union is known to us and we get in on it as Christ is praying, that that love between the father and the son and us will cause a massive hemorrhage in the world. And what in fact have we seen 2000 years after Christ's preaching? We've seen massive hemorrhaging where untold thousands have come out of the world into the kingdom of light just as Christ has prayed and when we look forward to revelation what are we going to see thousands upon thousands of every tribe, tongue and nation will at some point and will in the end say, I wanted in on that. I got in on that. I'm in on the union and the love bubble of the father and the son. Is this making sense? I think this is what is going on is, is Jesus has sent his apostles, verse 18, on a mission. And that mission has impacted us. And we've come into the love of Christ and the love of the father with the design that the love we experience would cause just havoc in the kingdom of the devil. I don't know about you, but this encourages me as we look and we see 
the darkness. We're in the middle of a section of Scripture where Judas has departed. We're in the middle of a section of Scripture where Peter, Paul, and, and or Peter, James, and John, and the other disciples, they're going to scatter. And yet Jesus looks out and he sees this, this massive hemorrhaging of the devil's kingdom. Continue, he continues in verse 22, and that the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. He's kind of repeating the same ideas, um, but now using the term glory, this glory thing that, that, that has been spoken of really since the beginning of this book. Look at John chapter 1. Real quick, John chapter 1. Remember in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld what? His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus comes in the flesh, and He is putting on this glory, this light, he is bringing light into a dark world, a light of truth, and that we get to behold the, the disciples beheld the glory of the Father in the face of Christ on the earth. And so in verse 22, the glory which you gave me, this light thing, this honor thing, this manifestation of your presence i have given to them the them here is all of the church that they may be what one as we are one what is going on here where this the word glory i don't know about you but when i i remember when i first became a christian and i started going to actually before i was a christian i remember sitting in a sunday school class and this the sunday school teacher using words like glory and that just sounded strange to me. I don't run around normally just just throwing around the word glory, right? It's just not it's just kind of an odd word, especially if you don't grow up in the church. Does anybody have that experience? Am I the only one that wasn't raised in the church? It's like you hear the word glory and you're like, that's weird. I don't I don't use that kind of word in in my day-to-day -day life. But just think for a moment just back you've got Moses and you know, all of Israel in the wilderness, what, what do they see on Mount Sinai? The glory of the Lord. And then when the tabernacle's built, you have the glory. When Solomon builds the temple, you have the glory. When um, Ezekiel is, is prophesying, the glory moves away. There's this light, this, this sense of God's presence and his majesty and his beauty. It's a beautiful thing to inquire of the Lord in his temple to behold his beauty, right? And so much so that Moses, even though he had seen aspects of God's glory, there's that day when he says to the Lord, he has the gall to say, Lord, show me your what? Glory. There's something about the glory of the Lord, something about getting near the Lord where we get a taste of it, where we want more. Moses wanted more. And the Lord says, well, you can't see me fully or you'll die, but. As the Lord's nature is, he loves answering prayer requests like that. So he says, sure, I'm going to allow you to see some of my glory as I declare my name to you. That I am compassionate, merciful, by no means will clear the guilty. And so Moses gets to see uh, the trail of God's glory. And we know that as Moses was coming up on the mountain, coming down, his face had to be veiled because it was so bright And here. Jesus has revealed his glory just being in the image of the father. And then he goes out and he begins to do miracles. The first miracle in Canaan in chapter two to put on glory. And then he's raising Lazarus of the dead. And that puts on the glory of the Lord. And and then lo and behold, the disciples get to see him transfigured on the mountain of transfiguration. And yet it didn't have quite the effect that Jesus, I think, maybe, you know, and as humanity was perhaps hoping for, as Peter says, hey, Lord, uh, let's build some tabernacles for you, Elijah and Moses. To which the father says, breaks out with a voice from heaven and says, this is what my beloved son, hear him. The son is the beloved one, absolutely loved, infinitely loved of the father. 
So Peter and the gang, the three of them, they get to see the glory of the Lord. And here, Jesus is praying. He says that the glory which you gave me, I have given them, not just the apostles, but all of the church, that they may be enfolded in us. We are one. I want to suggest to you, I want you to turn over later to 2 Corinthians 3.18. Actually, now we don't have time. 3.18. The part of what is going on here is that Jesus, while he has represented the glory of the Father, he now is going away, as we see in the rest of this discord previously, and he's going to send the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit is just going to pour the love of Christ and just dump it inside and all over them. That there's this odd idea that Jesus says, it is good that I go away. I don't know about you, but I, I wouldn't like that statement. If I'm right there in front of Jesus with the apostles and he says, it's good that I go away. I would say, no, it ain't. Let's let's try that again, Jesus. No, it is good that I go away. Why? Because if I go away, if I don't go away, I'm not going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit. But if I do go away, I'm going to send the helper. By the way, the spirit comes and brings the presence of Christ into us and now we get this glory so verse 22 the glory which you gave me i have now given them that they may be one they're going to be enfolded in the father son and now the holy spirit love bubble and we are all one i think that's part of what's going on you can go check my work in second corinthians 3 going on verse 23 This leads us to kind of just the request, just start building and building. I in them, you in me, with the result that they will be made perfect into one. The literal idea is into one. They will be made perfect. This is a passive voice. This isn't something you and I do. This is something that's done unto us by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are being made perfect into the one, into the Father and the Son, and by implication, the Holy Spirit, with, with, again, this result that has to do with the world, that the world may, what? Know that you have sent me. So he's basically saying some similar things, but throwing in the glory idea that the gospel has gone out, and the gospel of the glory of Christ has impacted the disciples, And now he sent his Holy Spirit out and it is no longer I who live, as Paul's going to say later, but it's Christ who what lives in me and the life I live in the flesh. I now live in him with and it's going to all move us to this thing of being perfected, not by ourselves, but by because we're inside of this enfolded love bubble of of this union within the Trinity. And that that is going to cause more and more hemorrhaging of this thing called the world. They will know that you have sent me. But not only that, I believe the final phrase here in verse 23, this is not repeated. 22 and 23 kind of repeat some similar ideas in a mirror fashion. But at the end of verse 23, we have something brand new to the equation which I think is the emphasis. And have loved them, that is the whole church, as you have loved me. I want, Lord, I've given them your glory and the glory that you've given me in order that they would get enfolded in this unified love, this unpluckable love that we have, and they'll be made perfect, and this will provoke the world to a hemorrhaging But really, the big idea here is I want the world to know. Think about this. Just track with me here. I want the world to know that you have loved them as you have loved me. You have completely loved them in the same way that you have completely loved me. And I want the world to know that. I want to put your love for me, which is the same love for them, on display before the whole world. I want them to look at that love 
hug, so to speak, that enfolding, and for them to be like, oh man, either one of two things, we have really missed out if they don't get in on it, or two, I want in on it. Really missed out if they don't do it before death. Two, I want in on it if they do it while alive, before death. Think about this for a moment, that the Father loves the Son infinitely, right? And His love for the Son is so complete, it could never get better. Is there any possibility that the Father's love for the Son could improve? Could Jesus improve His pleasing of the Father? No, if, when you track throughout John, there's all this love stuff where Jesus keeps saying over and over and over again, the Father loves me, the Father loves me. That's why He shows me all things. That's why He's committed judgment to me. Um, he loves me because I lay down my life for the sheep. It's just everything I do, He loves me. That's the, the Son's pleasing of the Father is infinite. And we've just been told that we're wrapped up in the Son. We are... You know, the father says, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. And we are now accepted in the beloved Ephesians one. So if you and I are in the beloved, what is the father's quality of love for us? Infinite. The old theologians used to they used a term that we no longer use today because it confuses us in a modern sense. The old theologians would talk about the complacency of the father's love for his son and therefore, his complacency in us. Complacency. What do they mean by that? Boy, if I told you I, had, I was complacent in my love for Katie, you'd be like, something's wrong here, right? But think, follow me here. The idea of complacency is, is it could never, it's not going to get any better. It's part of the idea of the literal word. And so the father is so complacent in his love for the son, it can't possibly get higher or better. And because we've been put into the son, the love that the Father has for us couldn't possibly be more or greater. There's nothing that we could do that would lessen his love. He is so complacent in his love for us because of his delight in his son. In fact, look up, you know, there's several Spurgeon sermons. John Gill talks about this, but Spurgeon has one of his points. It, it says this is the complacency of the Father for us because of his delight in his son. He is so complacent in his love for us because he delights in the beloved son. Just think about that. That the father loves me because he loves his son. I don't know about you, but that gives me hope when I think about this Judah Judas equation. There are many times in my life where I ask myself, am I Judas? And yet the Lord keeps proving to me over and over again. He gives me the treatment of Judah. But on what basis does he treat me like Judah because I'm pretty good today? Does he treat me like Judah because I'm doing better and better? Does he love me today at one level, but tomorrow he loves me at a different level? No, if we understand this text properly, he is complacent in his love for me completely complacent he has infinite love for me infinite love for every true child of god in this room not because you are so consistent not because you and i are so faithful it's because jesus is so faithful and the father loves his son infinitely he loves his son so much that it is not possible that he would not love you as well if you have come into him through the gospel, the glory of the gospel of Christ. How do we get into the glory of the gospel of Christ? We believe. 21. If you have ears to hear, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. We simply believe. We come into Christ and then we have this infinite love. And so he finishes this desire in verse 24. Father, here's my desire. I desire this. You want to see what what is what does Christ really want? You ever ask yourself this question? You should ask yourself this question as you think about praying to your heavenly father. Ask yourself on a daily basis, what do I want? Because the reality is, is your father 
if you ask him for a fish, is he going to give you a snake? If you ask him for bread, is he going to give you a stone? The father loves to give to his children. And if he loves to give to you, how much more does he want to give Jesus what he wants? And so in this verse, Jesus is just flat out saying, here's what I want. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. When he says I am, this is a common use in the Gospels and really throughout the Bible of speaking of something in the future that's so certain you speak of it in the present. So when Jesus says where I am, he's looking forward to his glorification. He says, I want the church to be with me where I am. That's what I want. If you were to boil everything down in this prayer to one thing, as far as what does Jesus really want for these believing ones? He wants them with him in glory. Why does he want them with them? That, that with him, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, by the way. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. It's all wrapped up in this love of the Father for the Son again. You loved me completely before the foundation of the world. You've given me glory. I want them, this is what Jesus is saying, I want these believing ones to be with me in glory so that they can see my glory. Why does Jesus want us to see his glory? Why is that? Think about that. Why does he want us to see his glory? Again, that's still, I'm like 50 years old and it's still a weird word to me. Why does he want that? I don't, I don't know that I completely understand why he wants it. But I know that if he wants it, it must be really good. It must be something else. We know that Moses wanted it, right? Moses got a little taste and he wanted it. <clears throat> we know that the apostles got a little bit of a taste of it. They, they walked around with Jesus throughout the world. And they even saw Je- Jesus transformed. You would think, man, that should, that should be the ultimate. But Jesus says, no, no, there's a better thing. It's better that I go away. I'm going to send the Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit comes And now the Holy Spirit's here giving us the glory of the gospel of Christ. And as we look to Christ in his word, and as the Holy Spirit pours the love of Christ out into our hearts, we're getting, as it were, we're getting kind of elements of the glory of Christ attaching to our persons, as Pastor Milton says in the gospel primer. And that's transforming us in this life. And that gives us a foreshadow of this glory to come. So we get a little taste of it now, right? As in a mirror dimly. But we know that when we see him, we will be what? Like him. When we see him, we're going to be like him. Jesus wants us to see him. And then when we see him, we're going to be like him. We're getting tastes of it right now because we have the spirit. And we have the scriptures. Look over this later. But if you look over at Second Peter, I believe it's chapter one. Peter talks about how that they heard the voice of the Lord. They saw the transforming of the glory. But you know, what's more sure than that. He says the scriptures that have come to us today. And so what we have through the scriptures, what we have through the spirit that Christ is now dwelling in us is portending more glory than the apostles had before Pentecost. Think about that. Even though, the G, even though the apostles walked around with Jesus on the earth and they saw him transfigured, Peter tells us what's better is that you guys get the scriptures and the Holy Spirit. That's better. But what's better than that is what Jesus desires in verse 24, that you and I would be with him. The one who loves us, who is pouring his love abroad in our hearts. And brothers and sisters, that's what changes us. When we are able to get a view of the love of the Father for us because of the Son, not because you and I are so faithful, not because we don't know, because we're going to just we're just going to be the best people to the end. And what happens is, is we get a view of the love of the Father for us through the Son, and that makes us more and more like the Son in this life. And then when we arrive in glory, we're like, oh. This is what it was all about. Do you guys remember when you were kids and night before Christmas, 
you know, you go to bed and you're just like so excited. Oh man, we get, we're gonna open up some presents and you, you know, your parent, there's already some presents under the tree and so you're excited about that. But mom and dad say, well, you know, Santa's coming tonight and there's gonna be a lot more tomorrow, right? So you go to bed, you just can hardly, hardly wait. And you get up in the morning and you go and you open those presents. It's so exciting, so exciting. I don't know about you though, but at the end of the present opening and all the papers everywhere and mom and dad's telling you you need to clean up now and you want to play with your toys, but you have to clean up first. You're kind of like, oh, that's a bummer. Um, there's always kind of like a little bit of a hollow feeling in my heart after the end of present opening. It's like, it wasn't that I was unthankful. It was just like, is that it? Not like, oh, I want more stuff. It's just kind of like, I was hoping this was really going to satisfy. I was so excited. And now the excitement's over and uh, there's this ache in my heart. But see, that's not going to happen as the Holy Spirit is putting Christ in us. We have Christ in us and we have these whispers of his glory and we're seeing it in the word. We're seeing it in the faces of our brothers and sisters. Jesus is drawing us to himself and he says, that's what I want. I want them to see me. And when we get there and we open up that present, there ain't anybody that's going to say, is that all? When we arrive in Christ's Pray for me. Holy presence. We will see that, man, it was so much more than we could possibly understand. We're just children listening in on adult conversation. We have no idea, but Jesus knows. And so he wants this for us. And so that's why he's given us his word, the Holy Spirit. He's. We've been we've received this mission. So we stay in his word. We stay close to the gospel. Let's finish just with this third point. The declarations of Christ. As Christ has prayed for all of us and he's prayed that we would be enfolded in this love union and that we would one day see his glory and that we would arrive there, he makes certain declarations. He says, righteous father, you are righteous, you are just, and you are a father. Here's some things he says, I know. I know the world has not known you. Even though it's hemorrhaged, it hasn't changed the character quality of the world. The world still does not know you. It's still underneath the sway of the evil one. The world does not know you as a unit. But here's what I know. I have known you. I'm going to talk about epistemology. You want to talk about how do we know? What do we really know? Jesus is the only one that knows things for certain. On this side of heaven, we still, we struggle sometimes with our knowing. But Jesus knows. There's no doubt in Jesus' mind. He knows the Father. He knows the character of the world. But here's something else he knows. <clears throat> These have known you. That you have sent me. The apostles have known you. They've known that you sent me. These ones that I present tense have in my mind. They have known you. He's looking out at you. He's looking at me. And there's no doubt in Jesus' mind when he looks at you, those of you who have believed, those of you who have ears to hear, who the Holy Spirit has poured the love of Christ into your hearts. He looks out at you and he says, they have perfect tense or aorist tense, I'm sorry, known me. It's a completed action. The idea is there's no guess in Jesus' mind about whether we're going to make it or not. There's no guess about whether Peter's going to make it or not. Remember, you know, Peter... Peter denies the Lord and Jesus says, Satan's asked to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you. And when you return and Jesus can say the same thing to every child of God in this room. And then he declares in verse 26, and I have declared to them your name. I've declared to the apostles your name, the name meaning that name he just stated, righteous father, this God who is compassionate and merciful upon thousands of generations, but will by no means clear the guilty. He is just and merciful. I've declared that name to the apostles. 
And I will continue to declare it. How is Jesus continuing to declare it? He continues to declare it because he sent his Holy Spirit and his Holy Spirit came upon the church and the church wrote the scriptures and the scriptures have been preached and transferred to us today. And so Jesus is continuing to declare his word right now. The name of God is being declared in our midst. And here's what Jesus wants us to think about at the end. He wants the disciples to think about that the love with which you loved me, which is infinite and complete, may be in them, the whole church, and I in them. Jesus wants us, wants the disciples to finish with that thought in his prayer. That the love that the Father has for the Son, He also has for us because we're in the Son. And He wants that love to be in us, knowing that He is in us. Think about that as we close, that you and I, what is it that will help us know whether we are Judas or Judah. It's the love of the Father for His Son. And that gives me great hope. Because my security, the fact that I am Judah, is based upon the Father's commitment to His Son. Not how faithful I have to be from one moment or the other. But it's as I drink in that love for me, that's what transforms me. It's the power of a new affection. It's the love of God poured into my heart. When I have come to understand at different points in my life, there's been new revelations of God's love for me. When I was expecting God's wrath, God brought me Matthew 18. As the night, there's the 99 and the one that goes astray. And the Lord was just helping me see that I'm the one that's gone astray. And he's coming after me. And I remember reading Ephesians 5. Beloved, calling me beloved in the beloved son. So many verses that time and time again, the Lord keeps coming after me. And I love him not because it emanates from me, but because he first loved me. I love him. Let's end with this last verse. Turn over to chapter 15, verse 9, and then we'll pray. Chapter 15, verse 9. As the Father loves me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. It goes the other way around. Jesus says, Father's loved me so much. I love you with that same love. Therefore, abide present tense my love. You can abide in my love. In fact, according to Christ's prayer, because he sees the church as present tense, it's a guarantee. So what that means for you and I, though, in human history as people who do have to make decisions before a holy God is we need to stay, abide in that love, stay underneath the gospel, keep meditating, keep thinking about, keep believing the gospel. And when you're doubting the gospel, cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I doubt, please help me see your love for me, not because of me, but because of Christ. And the God who brought Jesus through to the end and the Savior that brought his apostles through to the end will keep you through to the end because it depends upon him, not on you. Let's pray. Our Lord, we have been as children listening in on a very adult conversation that some of which is mysterious and befuddling to us in this chapter. And yet, by your love, you allowed John, the beloved disciple, the disciple whom you love, to hear this prayer. And then you sent your spirit to fill and drop on the church, and you led John into all truth as he wrote down these words, word for word, that fell from the lips of our Savior. This morning... We have read this word and we've heard it preached and your spirit is moving amongst us to impart it to our hearts. And we just pray that that the light of the gospel as it shined 
out of darkness into light and creation. It would shine into our hearts this morning that you would convict your people and you would comfort your people with your word. If it were up to us, we could not produce one shred of holiness, but because Christ is in us through the Spirit, that does give us the power of a transformed life as we come to experience the power of this new affection. But there are those amongst us who do not yet know and have not tasted, perhaps have hardened their hearts against this love. Lord, we know that it is never too late for a Judas while he is still alive. And so we pray that, Lord, you would cause a holy hemorrhaging even in this auditorium. That as there are those here who are outside of you, as they look at this enfolding, this union of love between Father, Son, Spirit, and people of God, that they would be provoked to jealousy by your Spirit. That they would want in on that and that your Spirit would awaken them to new life so that they could come in on that. So that they would not be left out in the darkness as Judas You are such a loving God. You are so kind. You have awakened us from the dead, brought us by your grace to life. Lord, thank you for the glorious prospect that we have in Jesus. We commit all this time to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen.